Okay, my friends, this one, I'm telling you what, fasten your seatbelts because Levi Gardner is in the back house. Welcome to the Robcast, Levi Thanks. Gardner. Thanks, Rob. It's Hi. His, Hi. <laughs> it's his first time in the back house, and I, ha I literally wrote down, I never write down questions or topics for because uh, I just go. I always know the first question of an interview, and then I just go, and I follow my curiosity with the person wherever they're taking me. So, so this is like an awkward first date where if you're, you're worried <laughs> that if you run out of things to say... No way. This is the opposite. This is, I know, it, I just, there's things that I need you to teach me about. Okay. So, my friends, I'm, I'm going to want you to talk about pedagogy of place. These are things I've read about you. Yeah. Agroecology, biointensive and organic growing, and ecological farming systems. That's a, so that's a lot of words. This is my agenda. This is my agenda for you and I. So let's start with you have a piece of land in a city. Yes. Where? So we are located Ur Urban Roots is in the southeast side of That's Grand an organization Rapids. you started. Yes. So You're I the started, founder? I'm the founder and executive director. Okay. Um so we have a piece of land that's about three quarters of an acre that's in the southeast side of Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've heard of it. A city you might, might yes. have visited. It's about eight degrees there and right now. And who bought this piece of land? Uh, so the land is actually owned by a developer. So okay. it's not, uh, right right now it's not, uh, the, the owner isn't doing anything with it. And then we have a building next to it and where we have our, our offices and our classrooms. But the land is in an area that you would call marginalized, disinvested. So the story of the area that's surrounding it is uh, there used to be a high school, like right adjacent to the piece of property, mm -hmm. just down a couple blocks. And when busing happened in the, the late 50s, early 60s, uh, the, the high school, which was called South High, was actually closed down. And so kids came to school and it was this, this thriving business and economic community and it, and it closed down and they sent all the kids to different suburban schools in different areas. And so then, as you imagine, there was a vortex of, of loss and all the businesses closed down. And so that area has been kind of replete with um, substance abuse issues and uh, home, uh, persons experiencing homelessness, incarceration. So it's a pretty economically devastated area. But in that, there was this piece of land. And so along with some other people, we started imagining what, what could we do with this piece of land, what could we imagine here? Uh, and so now it's 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 a garden, and we grow food, and we sell food, and we eat meals together, and we 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 imagine possibilities in marginalized spaces. And so that's the story of what we do. I mean, we we capture people's food waste by biking around and picking up food scraps uh, on a trailer, and then we bring it back, and we turn that into soil fertility, and then we grow more food out of that. So, okay, there's like ninety things right there. Let's start with basics. Food. What should we all know, all my Robcast friends, about the food that we are eating in the modern world? Well, I, to, to quote Wendell Berry, he said, eating is an agricultural act. And so with all of the discussion of, you know, Michael Pollan and Omnivore's Dilemma and, and that sort of work. I love his writing, by the way. Both yeah. of those writings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're aware of those things, but, but eating is far more intimate than we make it. You know, I, when I hear people talk about food as fuel, I'm kind of, I'm kind of sad because fuel is this very disconnected, segregated thing. You put it in your you know, vehicle and it serves one purpose. There's no intimacy. There's no connection. There's no storytelling. Yes. 
with food, there is a place. There is soil. There's sunshine. Um, in in um, in Europe, they call it terroir, which is what is the story of the of the food. Where is the place that it's connected to? And we've lost a lot of the terroir of of our food. So. Um, you know, I once saw this meme of, of a family sitting down to pray, and they were saying, you know, dear Jesus, you know, thank you for this meal. And then the bottom is a picture of a Mexican farmer saying, de nada. <laughs> <laughs> it was nothing. It was nothing. <laughs> You're welcome. It was nothing. Um, the, the food that we eat is connected to so many different things, and, and uh, the, the way we kind of have it compartmentalized, literally and metaphorically, um, says some things about our own humanity and our own spirituality, I think. Because after this, I go get groceries once a week. After this interview here, then my daughter and I will go to the local grocery store, and we'll get, I'll get this week's groceries. I don't know. Sometimes the packaging will tell me. Otherwise, I'm at many levels disconnected from who made it, where it comes from, are the people who raised this food able to send their kids to school? Like, how does this, yeah. I'm, I'm able to live completely divorced from where this all comes from. And, and when you think about food for most of us in the industrialized world is the most basic way we interact with the natural world, yes. because we can stay completely segregated. Right. We, we can, we can live fluorescent and tile floors all and of that. air conditioners and heaters. And yet... When you take a bite of citrus, it, you know, there's a reason why we like sometimes two weeks ago, I was on a plane, you know, this, this metal tube flying through the air at 600 miles an hour. And I was longing for something alive because it's a plane. And I slowly peeled an orange and I swear doing that, like the, the, the people around me were kind of like, what, what, what is this foreign smell of something that's alive? <laughs> uh, and I, Food is a way that we get to access the rest of the natural world and our own needs in that. You know, sometimes you hear people talk about who's needy. Um, food lets us know that we all are needy and we are all humbled. And so our connection to the soil and the sun and precipitation and hydrology, it's all embedded in our relationship to food. And so uh, I, I think food is one of the most spiritual things that we have that exists. Thank you. I love it. Okay, so you get so this developer lets you use this piece of land. What? No one wants this piece of land. So what's what's fascinating about it, Rob, is that the developer owns the piece of land and they are okay with us using it, but at some point it might be turned into housing, turned into development. Yeah. And you know, I love I love Brene Brown. I love all of her work and I love what she talks about with vulnerability. And sometimes I think about open land as an exercise in vulnerability because when we start putting up boxes and we start putting up buildings, we get to decide who's in and who's out. We get to put up literal and metaphorical boundaries saying, you're invited, you have access, you, you get to attend the party and you don't anymore. And it's funny because one day we had this gentleman walk by and I was out working this small piece of land. And he walked by in his kind of intro, and he was kind of kind of staggering a little bit. And he said, I, I did two tours in Iraq, currently homeless, and I have a substance abuse issue. Like that, that was his like opening line. And he goes, and this gives me hope. You farming this little piece of land. Yeah. And, and what, do you, what do you say to that? Because I, I didn't even give him anything. Like literally didn't, did, didn't do anything. I was just kind of dumbfounded. But the, the, the simple kind of ability to interact with something beautiful and inspiring that was cultivated and not one more building. I mean, that speaks to something really deep inside of all of us that we long for. And, um, 
you know, when you read about the, the nature deficit disorder and how much is connected between us and human beings to the natural world. They're, they, literally, it's called nature, nature deficit Nature deficit disorder. disorder, yeah. So, uh, Richard Louvre wrote a book, um, uh, Last, Child, uh, Last Child in the Woods. And essentially, like, the more and more we research, the more we understand that we are inherently ecological beings. We, we, uh, we derive so much of our life from sun and soil and water and fresh air. And so for many kids that are in the neighborhood that we're in, uh, you know, when it's highways and, you know, busy streets and industrial areas and liquor stores, that's, that's it. And so having something as simple and as humble and yet as poignant as a garden, uh, the implications are, are massive for hope, for cultivation, for a different story being told in that place. So, so what do you have, by the way, what do you have planted on that piece of land? Um, so, you know, we always tell like arugula to zucchini. Um, so it's, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, like, it, and, and, uh, we'll, we'll, all, all of the, the vegetable puns, but we have bees now. Um, so we, so we raise bees and, uh, you know, the other thing that we get to do is, so in addition to, to lots of fruits and vegetables and, and blueberries and strawberries and, um, <coughs> excuse me, we have a, we have a grove of fruit trees as well, but, um, we eat there. So when I started the organization, I just grew a lot of things and taught a lot of things. Where, let's back up. Where did you learn how to grow things? Oh, yeah, um, well. Did you always love this? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I had my first garden when I was 10, so I think yes. But to be honest, um, well, so I'll, I'll back up more. So seven days out of college, I got a job working in a building teaching people about the environment. And it, <laughs> I love the way you said that. Yeah. I got a job in a building <laughs> teaching people about the environment. And it only <laughs> Yeah, good. It only took about three months. Actually, no, it was the first week. It was a beautiful day, kind of like today, except there it was in the summer, you know, because we only get three months at this. Yeah. And it was 72 degrees and sunny. And I went outside for lunch and there was no one there. And I went, where is everybody? And everybody was still inside. And literally, I, I had grown up working outdoors. So I found myself starting to get tense and anxious. Like, no, no, my body is clamoring for fresh air right now. And through the process of working in a building, teaching people about the environment, I slowly discovered that uh, I am, have to be connected to the things that sustain me. The, the air, the water, the sunshine, uh, the vegetation. It's, it's literally and metaphorically part of who I am. So I have to be. Um, so, so in addition to, to growing lots of food, we eat lots of food. Because growing can be, you know, and we, we, we think about it in these laborious and, and gross ways that farming or, or gardening are kind of these, I don't know, uh, simple-minded kind of... They're right, menial, uh, menial or just sort of yeah. rudimentary, right. I, I ask my students all the time, when I say farming, what do you think of? And it's always the, you know, like older man with the straw hat and the overalls and the pitchfork. As opposed to heightened consciousness and connection and attuned to deeper rhythms. Yes. And which so is when, what it is. When I think about the Anishinaabek, who were the indigenous brothers and sisters native to our uh, lands in the Midwest where they had the three sisters garden. And they had a, a, a calendar of how they procured food that was reflective 
of the seasons. And so there was this, this communion, this interaction that was constantly unfolding, and it wasn't this kind of uh, industrialized right. spitting it out. And the anticipation of blueberries are coming. Yes. And then they're going to go away, and you're going to have to wait for them again. So then you're going to appreciate them all the more. Yes. Like all of the comings and goings heightened the dance. Absolutely. Because when, when things are just constantly available in, in kind of an industrialized world, I think we... We forget the beauty of it right now. You know, in, in Zen Buddhism, they call it a beginner's mind. Yes. That, oh, this, oh, this is new. This yeah. is new. Try this peach. Yeah, this, yeah, this is this is the best one you've <laughs> ever had. the best peach ever, yes. Because it's the one you're having right now. Kristen always makes fun of me because of how much food. I'm always like, this is the best <laughs> apple ever. Because that's how I feel. This is the best taco ever. Because, <laughs> always with tacos. Yeah, that's true. Always that's, with tacos. That's like an eternal truth. But anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, but but I was I was growing lots of food and we started to realize we, we have to eat this like we have to learn and, and create a culture of eating. So as a staff now we literally eat a, a meal together every day. Uh, so all of our meals are prepared together uh, and and you know mostly uh, like we had a, we had a day three weeks ago. It was one day that it warmed up to like fifty two degrees, and so one of my staff went out to the field and and out of one of our little greenhouses, harvested carrots and beets and radishes and prepared a meal. And yes, it was Michigan and it was the middle of winter, but literally eating things that still had a tiny residual of soil on them, which had come from the compost that we had picked up from individuals' food scraps. I mean, I think that the thing that I love about it so much is that there's ways of thinking about the world that it's linear and then there's ways of thinking about it that's cyclical. And, and there's rhythms, and I feel like the, the rhythms that we get to tap into as growers um, and as eaters are, is this constant participation and constant unfolding of, of the communion of the food that we eat and the bodies that we live in. Oh, my word. It's so inspiring. So on any given day, you're out on this piece of land. People are coming by. And then people are coming for classes? So we, we do lots of different things. Um, our tagline is Grow, Eat, Learn. And one of the things we want to do is if you're interested in growing, eating, or learning, we want to connect with you. So, Because um, one of the other things that we started a couple years ago um, is that we have people stop by and sometimes, you know, they say, uh, they want to buy some food. Okay, great. Sometimes they say, we don't have any money to buy some food. Okay, that's also great. Um, sometimes we have people, we had, we had a random day a few weeks ago where we had a hodgepodge of like 13 people eating lunch in this conference room that's about half the size of this room here around this old table and this, you know, gross building that we're in. And then a, a guy who's volunteered a ton, you know, recited a poem to all of us. And it was just ridiculously beautiful. It was Perfect. Like, and this is a Tuesday. This is, <laughs> this is a Tuesday. Um, so our, you know, our, our invitation is to kind of be human. It's funny. We have one gentleman who, uh, who's been volunteering with us for about eight months or so, and he's actually from San Diego. Uh, and he'll say things like, you know, this is my church. This is, yeah. this is, this is where I find something holy and sacred. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just a Tuesday. And that's a Tuesday. Okay, talk to me about agroecology. Oh, something you're known for. Yeah. <laughs> so, ecology. I love the word oikos in in the Greek. house. Yes, 
and, and, and we have the words ecology and economy, which are funny because people couldn't think about more separate ideas, not realizing... Which come from the same root same understanding. How do you run word. the house? How do you run the house? Your well, house, the house. The, the house. The world is a house, yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and, I love it. And, and, and one of them is like dollars and Wall Street and hedge fund managers, and the other one is the Grand Canyon and the wilderness. And yet they're all about stewardship of the thing. Um, however, you know, so uh, again, to, to quote Barry, he says that we have this twofold view of nature. He says the first one is just destroy, just dominate. And that's strip mining and that's clear cutting and it's deforestation and it's urban sprawl. And it's all of these ways that we think about nature that we just, it's power over. It is it's, here to be used for whatever we feel like using it for. Right. right yes. Right. It, it, it's, it exists as a resource. But then he says, but then there's this other side, this flip side that he calls the terrarium view of ecology, which is don't touch it. Don't do anything. Don't interact. Just look at it. Just look. You know, the, the uh, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footsteps. And he says the problem is if we have the terrarium view of ecology that can only exist because we have this uh, duality over here of destruction and devastation, uh, th th it really isn't serving any benefit. And so he talks about engaging with nature um, as a form of communion. So ecology being the system, the thing that exists, you know, the, the world that, that is around us. Um, agriculture, as it's been practiced, has been a thing to be dominated over the land. Mm -hmm. It's, um, you know, I once had a friend say, I, I think about fertilizer the same way I think about a cup of Starbucks in the morning. It's synthetic inputs to sustain an amount of productivity that shouldn't be sustained. Oh. oh, I just have to stay, sit with that for a second. It's like your body has energetic resources if you take good care of it, but a star, like the need for caffeine is, forget about how it really wants to and just override the thing. Y yeah. And yeah. a fertilizer is like a stair, like just, yeah. It's, don't let it do its thing. Step all over it. It's, it's assuming that the soil and Ecosystems have no capacity for regenerative growth, and it assumes we have to control them. It's what, you know, I, uh, um, there's this author, Joanna Macy, and I, I love her work, and, and she... How do you spell Macy? M-A-C-Y. Okay. And she talks about the, and her and, and, and some other scholars talk about the difference between power over versus power with. And one of these is domination, control, patriarchy, and the other is communion, engagement, stewardship relationship yeah. yes yeah that the things are defined in relationship yeah. to themselves and so agroecology is a is a big word to think about what does agriculture look like when it acknowledges limitations of the thing but also engages with it in a way to produce so uh, on the on the flight here i was sitting next to a guy ironically who works for a, a agricultural chemical provider of course of course we sit next to each other like <laughs> And, you know, so then he gets to the, what, what do you do question? And, um, and we spent the entire time talking and, you know, he said to me, he goes, I, I, I work with agricultural chemicals. I, I couldn't tell you anything about soil or sunshine or trophic webs. I, he goes, I, I couldn't, that's not what I do. What's a trophic web? Oh, that's, that's fun. So you, you learned about food webs when you were in school. So, you know, like the, the, the predator. Refresh eats, me. So... On the bottom, you've got all of the, the you know, primary decomposers and autotrophs. You've got all the tiny little things in the soil. And then above that, you have um, 
maybe the primary consumers. So you've got worms and beetles and arthropods, and they consume the primary decomposers. And then you have the next scale, which is maybe um, herbivores. And then you've got some carnivores and fauna. And then you have, you know, uh, as you move up secondary and tertiary, and then finally you get to the keystone predators. But what's really interesting is... I love that whole bit you just did, by the <laughs> way. I can barely follow, but I loved it. <laughs> what's funny is that we, we, again, we think about this, this pyramid, this food web, as if somehow it's, you know, sort of domination over. And that it's human's job to dominate over, you know, this piece, which is to dominate over that. And actually you find out that it's so much more related. I mean, I, I reflect all the time on the fact that the word humus, which is the top two inches of the soil is the same root word as the word human. Yeah. Like we're literally of the soil. Yeah. 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 When I began to realize that the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, the things that everything is made of, we're made of, and that environment is both internal and external, Yeah. that I'm made of the same stuff. It just revolutionized the way I think about everything. As opposed to the environment being out there, the environment is in here and it's me. Yeah. Sometimes when I, I, you know, I taught a class last semester in this awful, awful classroom that was just white walls, drop ceiling, one window, uh, and there I'm supposed to, you know, engage my students in something exciting and innovative. And I, and I said, you know, what, what is living in this room? And here I have 20 students. They all look around and they go, nothing. I was like, nothing? Nothing. is, Is there anything living in this room? Nope. Nope. Nothing living. (laughs) <laughs> and it's it, it it is that when we when we start to see ourselves yes. as incarnations and as animations of all things that are living, the the earth is not a wilderness thing that's out there. It's we're literally carrying it around and stewarding it all the time. And this this body and these emotions and all all of the metabolic processes that are happening all the time they are in communion with the earth, whether we want to admit it or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. You just were riffing on <coughs> webs, but that was a riff on something else. It's true. Can we guess back to what that was? Because that was fascinating. It was all fascinating. Just, sure. So we're, just, we're, we're hopping around. I apologize. It, it no way. That happened no other way. There was something you were doing before that involving systems or agriculture or the earth or... It was all, all of those things. Okay, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll say this. So... The field of agroecology has actually come not far from here, out of Santa Cruz. And there are some farmers and, and thinkers trying to imagine what, how can we feed the world? You know, oh. population of 7.6 billion people today, it'll be 11 billion and change in 2100. How can we feed the world? How can we steward the resources that we have? And in doing that, they start to actually go, that there's actually a way we can do this that's not uh, either we lose or nature loses. There's, there's a way actually to, to live um, in a mutually symbiotic, beneficial way. And, and that's the thing that I think we, we, we miss sometimes, so often. Right. That, that we, we, approach, uh, we approach agriculture the same way we approach lots of things, which is just violence. So it's, it's violence, it's power over, it's, it's control, it's domination, and it's not asking what is the earth already capable of? It's never even trusting it to see what can just happen. So they did this study and I th- found it to be really p- fascinating. In, um, in ecology, there's this thing called net primary productivity. And if you were to take, like, take a rainforest 
and look at all of the pieces of the rainforest, right? So the spider monkeys and the mangoes and the pineapples and, and the, the you know, uh, ground cover and the upper canopy, look at all of it. Look, look at everything inside of it. And they said, okay, if that ecosystem, is it better off, is it more productive if we just plant one thing in it or if it's all of these various symbiotic relationships going on? And what they find is that if the goal is to produce one thing, and, and that's your goal, and your aim is just to produce one thing, then you should strip it down, get rid of it, and just plant one thing. But if your goal is long-term health, viability, and the overall health of the whole thing, uh, it's actually called dynamic stability, which I love that term so much. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like, I it's love it. It's such a contradiction. Like pushing against itself yes, in such a beautiful way. That like you get to a thing where something is literally stable and constantly evolving and constantly emerging. Uh, I got to visit the whole rainforest in Seattle a little while. Trees are not down for a day before opportunistic flora are already starting to, you know, metabolize and break down the tree that just fell over and, and, and ground animals are using it for, for habitat. And so the, the, the imagination of a natural system is constantly creating. It's just constant. It never stops. And yet the way we think about farming is this very static, mm. uh, controlled, what limited... What can you get out of this square footage or acreage? yeah. And then what can you get out of it in the next crop? It's just a very production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's not, it, there's, there's no communion. There's no relationship. There's yeah. no, you know, gratitude. So you're saying that the experts are looking at the challenges we have ahead of us with population increases. The earth is capable of feeding everybody. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you, and, and, and there'll be people that are like, no, it's not. It's absolutely not. It really is. We probably have to change how we eat. Yeah, sure. Um, but the Earth is so much more productive than we give her credit for. She's just so much more resilient. Uh, and, and, and again, I, I think our imaginations are limited sometimes. Um, when you get to see... Uh, so, the, as I mentioned, the Anishinaabe with the three sisters, it's called a polyculture, um, which I love thinking about. It's like a community of organisms existing together. And that there's actually symbiotic relationships between plants sometimes and companion planting. And so when they were growing, you know, corn, beans, and squash, um, beans naturally fix nitrogen. They pull some of the nitrogen that's 78% of the air and they fix it. Uh, and corn demands a lot of nitrogen. So beans and corn already have a symbiotic relationship. Um, but then squash, which likes warm temperatures, but it also likes some level of shade, is an incredible ground cover, and so it would suppress weeds. Uh, and then sometimes they would grow, um, the pole beans would actually grow up the corn stalks, so you have a natural trellis system. So that sort of <laughs> innovation and creativity, I mean, that's just, it's brilliant. Uh, tell me about the, your favorite plant, or your favorite food, <sighs> or your food that does the most amazing thing on its own. Oh... <sighs> If you if if we yeah. were to say to you, show us some stuff, show us some plants or some foods, yeah, that so, would blow our minds. So I think um, for as long as I've been growing, uh, I love growing garlic. 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 Not not only because all good meals begin with sautéed onion and garlic. Sure. Right. There's there's that. So we have people in now now here in California we we probably grow something called soft neck garlic and you grow it during the you know probably plants uh, around now would be my guess. But in colder climates, 
uh, garlic is called a biennial. It means it has a two-year growth cycle. And so people always say, when do you grow garlic? And you actually plant garlic in the fall, um, like between October and end of November. And what I love about garlic is it has to have cold and time of just sitting still to develop roots. That's it. The first thing it does is just develop roots without any expectation. It's in no rush. It's in no rush. It's just taking its time. And then as the snow starts to peel back and the sun starts to come out and the days start to get a longer, you see some of the first shoots of garlic. And every year it happens. It's miraculous. To me, like, there is hope for us in cold climates every time I see the first shoots of garlic. And then it grows and it has these stalks and the actual flower that comes out of garlic is called a, a scape. And which, this is the fascinating thing to me. Um, garlic, uh, scapes actually have a mild, pungent garlic flavor. Um, but what you do is when they start to pop out, you actually harvest them and you can eat that. But this is the amazing thing. By doing that, and plants are just the most resilient things, by removing the scape, removing the, the flower, the seed pod, the plant naturally puts more energy into to the bulb development. So the bulbs actually get significantly bigger once we get rid of the scape. Um, and then we plant garlic uh, around, or, or we, we harvest garlic around middle of July or so, and we put it up and we, we cure it all and we store it. But then we actually take garlic and actually break apart those bulbs and then replant those again in November. And so it's just this, con yeah, it's just this constant unfolding. It's, it's really amazing. I, lo I love growing garlic. I, lo I love reading about garlic. I love thinking about garlic. I love, yeah, I know, I know. It's just a, it's, well, it it's just so magical. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that something that has such a distinct taste and is so amazing and makes so many things taste better, when you tell me about what I don't know about it, that's as interesting as how it tastes. Yes. The, I mean, the growing cycle and the scape and all that. Yeah, yeah. No, because I think it's, you know, it, it kind of like marches to a beat of its own, as it were, I guess. <laughs> But I, but I love anything in the Allium family. I mean, I just, I, I, I think it's a, a Wendell Berry poem. And he says, to the man, uh, to the gardener, um, to, the, to the lover of all things growing, the soil is a divine drug. It feels that way. It, it feels like a thing that is actually, literally and metaphorically grounding for us. There was just some research yeah. that I read about how um, bare feet on the soil literally grounds us. And yes. Yeah, it, yeah. There's all that study about bare feet on the earth and how it, what it does to you. It's all that interesting new research. Yeah. And I, I, I think, I think it's so much more just than, than just food. It's like, for, for me, it's deeply spiritual. There yes. were, there were times where I remember going to a church that had no windows and having this pull Absolutely. inside of me of going, uh, th there's something right. beckoning to mm -hmm. me to be uh, in, in the, the piece of wild things, as it were. Absolutely. Now, um, I have a couple more things on my list that I have to make sure I cover. Pedagogy of place. You teach yeah. a pedagogy of place. Yeah. Pedagogy being a... Uh, a curriculum, a way of thinking about it, a lens. Yeah. So uh, this, I love talking about this one. Thank, thank you. So <laughs> pedagogy is is you know the 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 means the way of leading the child, and it's just about how we think about learning. And so there was this scholar named Paulo Ferreri. Um, he wrote Pedagogy the Oppressed, and 
in it, he introduces this idea of that most education. And you were, you were talking with Pete Rollins about this last week of like content transfer, you know, just like taking information and just dumping it into someone. Um, and that, you know, when I think about online learning, this is like a, a premier example of this. Like, doesn't matter where you are, like, you can just, you know, learn the things and then take the tests because whatever box you're in with fluorescent lights and no windows is fine. Um, place, uh, you know, when we start to think about it, tells us a much different story because it's not the same everywhere you go. Uh, so we were talking, you know, before we, before we started recording this about the difference in ideas and culture and creativity that, re that are related to a place. Mm -hmm. And that comes from noticing and observing and seeing what's the story here. Um, solar path, uh, which is fascinating to me. People often don't realize that the sun is constantly changing depending on where you're at. And obviously, you know, we have shorter days and longer days, but these things change how we feel. They change our moods. They change how we interact. They change how we think about wanting to eat. You know, there's a reason we want soup in the winter. Um, that, that's, that's related to those things. And so uh, as opposed to uh, an industrialized education that comes out of somewhere and, and, and just tells you information, place begins with just sitting and noticing, and that's it. It's, it's really quite simple and yet quite profound. Um, so when I walk a farm, anytime I get an opportunity to go walk a farm, I, I got to visit this farm a little while ago, and it's just beautiful. And we just spent the, the, the first little while walking it, noticing what is the soil like? Where is the water moving? What is the habitat? What are the wind rows? Where is the wind coming from? Uh, what are the natural peaks and valleys? Where are their microclimates? Um, all of these things are an ecological education, but they happen just in a place. There's no textbook that's needed. There's no, uh, you know, curricula. The land itself is wanting to tell a story, but you have to quiet down just enough to listen. Mm -hmm. And the more every exit off the interstate has an Applebee's and a Best Buy and a T-Mobile, you know what I mean? Yeah, to totally. Every place becomes, like in art theory, they talk about thisness. And thisness is the sense in which this thing is unlike other things. And that as places lose their thisness, I could be in Palatine or I could be in Waco or I could be in Charles. Like, as places lose their place, it's all the more important that, no, you keep the place that place. That, that the place has some sense of place. Some sense of thisness. Yes. That the place I'm, has I'm, a sense I'm, of place. <laughs> this, the sense has a place of thisness. I'm going to remember that. I like that. It's... Two fantastic ideas stacked on top of each other. <laughs> yeah, it's like a longing of the soul that so many people in the modern world know something's off. Yes. And they know that that new strip mall, which is going to be the same six taupe-colored storefronts yes. with the same six stores that they've seen 11 miles back, they know that this is somehow connected with their own soul, but maybe can't name it. But it's every place just becomes like every other place and you lose this soil, that tree, <clears throat> those birds, yeah, this history. One of the things, so I used to teach at an outdoor classroom and it was just some benches. And I would always ask my students, you know, this exercise, okay, when I say education, what do you think of? And it was always like school and books and tests and generally the ones that were more honest would be like boring, fatigue, you know, like <laughs> what am I doing with my life? 
And they'd go through this whole exercise and generate this whole list. And then I would say, okay, now tell me when you were most alive, what did it look like? And it would be when I went camping with my brother. It would be when I decided just to drive overnight to visit my friend who wasn't expecting me at college. Uh, it would be um, fishing with my dad. And it was all of these stories that just kind of emerged. You, you, you didn't have to coax it out of people. It was just there because they were like, oh, I can, I can tell you when I was alive. And when they were alive, all of their sensations were just firing. Everything about them was yeah. immersed in the space. Contrast that with the classroom that is white and fluorescent and carpet tiles, yeah. and there's no sense of place. It's just one more enlarged cubicle. Yeah. Oh. A couple hours ago, I was in the ocean surfing with a friend, and uh, in between way in between sets, I got off my board and I was just swimming around, just looking at the sandy bottom, because the way the wave is breaking is determined by the shape of the bottom. So I always like to swim around that's just cool. to see. Oh, that's why this spot right here it's breaking a little bit like this. And um, when I came in, there are these. Uh, like leopard sharks. They're maybe three or four feet long. And as I came in um, on one wave, I was going over top of them. And my friend, when I paddled back out, I was like, did you see the leopard sharks? He's like, yeah, I did, because we had seen them six weeks ago. Oh the water God. had been full of them. And they're totally harmless. And they're so cool when you come in, because they're like swimming. I mean, you go over top of them, essentially. Um, but we were discussing... Is it a breeding thing? Is it a feeding thing? Because it's only in the winter. Uh, but why today? And then why was it? Was it six weeks ago we were out? That we saw them again, but we surfed that we surfed this spot all the time. So I'm in this water hours every week. But then why the? So this discussion we were having was so incredibly grounding. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, there were, and then um. And that's it. And then there was like, <laughs> there were there were tourists on the beach just taking photos of the ocean and. I finished a ride in very shallow water and I said to them, you know, like if you step into that water just a little bit and I pointed like a little bit out, you can like get pictures of these really cool sharks. And it was interesting to me how many different things were happening about place yeah. in that and, and how that does something to me at like a million different levels. Um, and and to think just the like the sheer act of wonder yes when that is sparked it, yes and that is the the curiosity from where all other good things grow everything else right 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 it's 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 why we're here at some level um now what i find interesting is like i've seen farms on the north shore in hawaii I mean, I've had picnics in the south of France on a hillside with the food that had been grown. Um, south Africa, I've had meals beside a river that have everything grown. You are in a cold climate in, as you described, like a blighted area mm -hmm. in a three-quarters of acres. It's not sexy. No, no. And, and, the, and the semis that are driving by constantly. Right, right. Also. And that's why I point your, what's really compelling to me is your wonder and awe is from that piece of land in that location, that kind of, that kind of connection and communion and 
holiness is right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, it's almost like you. It's like you went, okay. Where's the? Where would it be the most impressive? Because <laughs> if you're like, well, you know, the grapes this time of year in France, we'd all be like, oh, please. Yeah. But you're. But you. It's like you've picked a spot. It's almost like you went, okay. I'm going to show you how real this is. I'm going to pick the last place you should pick. At some level, not degrading yeah, that area because yeah, it's a lovely yeah. area. I, I know that well. Um, but you're seeing this there. Yeah. On this little piece of land such that an, isn't particularly bent towards it. No, no. That's such, that, that, there is no, you know, romantic agrarian notion in an industrialized Correct. area. No, that's so, that's so interesting it to makes think about. You and your organization and what you're doing, it's so compelling because it raises all these questions about everybody else everywhere else. Um, because this then means the, what you are experiencing could it be, ex- it just takes away everybody's excuses. <laughs> well, I, you know, my, my wife and I talk a lot about, for all of us, uh, I'll, I'll say especially millennials, but just in general, if you're awake, if you're awake, <laughs> you know that there are things that are not going well in yes. the world. Yes. There are problems knocking on our door constantly. Yeah. And, I see this with my students, uh, overwhelming guilt and shame and concern and what way do I go, what, what, which way is up. I'm drowning in um, school shootings and mass incarceration and climate change and deforestation. And what, what, what do I do in the face of all of that? There's nothing, there's nothing I can do. And so then the, the, the guilt is just paralyzing. And I think the simple act of planting something Yes. And cultivating it. Yeah, it's the least cynical thing you could you, do. You can't. I, I've grown things countless times. Every year, I'm still overwhelmed. And, and I'm childlike in that. Because I think it really is an invitation into this common humanity that we all share. And while the south of France is beautiful, yeah. or um, overlooking a, a, a bluff in, you know, in, in, in the Central Valley or wherever it may be... Um, you know, we had countless meals there in this place, and we, we started looking around and going, something interesting is happening just yes. here. And, and, and it's accessible, and it's available. Because I think that's the thing, that the, the invitation has to be um, to everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've raised a thousand more questions, but let me, a couple things here as we land the plane. To everybody who's listening, who's... Like, ah, their job is like, really, this is it? You know what I mean? Or their life. Yeah. They're like, there's got to be more. What, what, what do you say to everybody who's like, there's got to be more. I just don't know how to name it. Oh. I love Barbara Brown's Taylor's words of finding the really real. The, mm-hmm. the really real. The... the, the the thisness, mm-hmm. thinking about lives of strip malls and suburbs and air conditioning, the real, while it comes with a challenge and it doesn't always come with a guidebook, is beckoning us. And whether it's a garden or a walk 
or a hike or a poem or creating a piece of music, touching that thing inside of us that's waiting to be sparked. That, that, that creativity that's just there and it's boundless. Um, we have to take the vulnerable act of opening ourselves up to that. I think, I think growing is one of the most creative things that exist. Absolutely. And I think there's this, there's this available sort of everyday activism that's, that's waiting for all of us because the, the idea is that you either throw your life into it and, 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 or we sit back and go, no, I can't do that. That's just too much. That's too big of an ask. But what is the next right move? How do we become more awake, more alive, more engaged, more aware, more present? What's your favorite meal? Oh, my favorite meal. Oh, so, <laughs> I think generally it's the one that I'm eating. Oh, yes. Excellent. Uh, that was kind of a trick question, and you <laughs> gave the perfect answer. I assume your organization, Urban Roots, I assume there are people doing this sort of thing all over the place. Yes. Do you have like yeah. a, what do you even call it? A network? Uh, a coalition? Yeah. <laughs> a movement? Uh, uh, yeah, a, a, a subversive ideology. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I've been, I've had the opportunity to get to, to travel and, and meet some friends and organizations. Um, yeah, there's, there's some, uh, uh, there was a woman named Majora Carter who started something called Greening the Ghetto in Brooklyn a number yes, of I've years of back. Um, there's a gentleman named Will Allen who started something called Growing Power in Milwaukee. Really, really inspiring. Beautiful, beautiful work. There's a lot of work happening here on the West Coast. Uh, when I was in Santa Cruz, uh, I just got to visit the Homeless Garden Project where they're providing uh, job skills, training, uh, and food and a market to individuals experiencing homelessness in Santa Cruz. I mean, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Um, What's that organization called? Uh, the Homeless Garden Project. Oh, my goodness. Uh and the last Great. one I'll, the, I'll say is there's one in Chicago that's really inspiring uh, as a fellow Midwest organization called Growing Home. And they, every year, are working with 40 formerly incarcerated individuals, building job training while growing food in a similar blighted area and bringing about more beauty and redemption to the world, both for the individuals there and to the world around them. I mean, places like that help me imagine. Oh, man. Okay, so... How do people get a hold of you if they want so they can to go learn more? Urban Roots. UrbanRootsGR.org. UrbanRootsGR.org. It's true. Okay. You are so fantastically inspiring to me, I can't stand it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. One more question. Bio-intensive oh, growing. Okay. We'll, we'll go fast. One on, more to take. No, no, we got all the time we need. Okay, to okay. So, one more to take us home. <laughs> oh. Um, so there was a book called Farmers of 40 Centuries. Uh, written by a gentleman named F.H. King. And he looked at the farming tradition of the world over the last four millennia and kind of studied it. And then out of that, this gentleman named John Jeevens, who's also in California, started looking at how do farmers grow throughout the world? And he looked at their tools and their techniques and their relationships, and he developed this system um, and it was actually out of France. He visited some French growers as well that were kind of pioneering this. And I got a chance to go and study with him last year for a little while. Um, so it is the most beautiful system that I've ever seen. It's intended to be a very closed loop system. But the thing that I love about it the most is it's all done with hand tools. There's no mechanization whatsoever. And when visiting him, he was kind of the first person to open my eyes to, um, you know, uh, we, we hear 
the the term nonviolence when we talk about activism or engagement or mm-hmm. communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he talked about um, nonviolent ecology. And that using a tiller, which is inherently just destroying the earth, as small as it is. Um, and he said, we can interact with her in far more peaceful ways. So it's all done by hands. And in fact, there was a vineyard that was just uh, planted in uh, France done using this method where they excavate and create these, these trophic structures. So the soil is literally alive. The more and more we learn about soil, the more we're learning it's literally alive. Soil is, uh, it can be dead, but it also can be the most thriving productive ecosystem. And biointensive is this model. It's this way of looking at the soil and growing and companions and seed saving um, that I ultimately think is gonna help us not only feed ourselves, but feed the earth and feed the world. It's a really, really beautiful system. And when I've seen it, and uh, when I was at this farm, and, and for three days, um, we all ate food that was from this farm. And it was, you know, um, uh, sunflower seeds, and it was amaranth and quinoa and uh, grains and, and fruits and vegetables and nuts. And it was all produced on this tiny, tiny little farm. Uh, and it really was both quite picturesque, um, but the energy that went into it and the care and the stewardship of how. Uh, down to down to mindfulness and meditation when transplanting. I mean, the whole thing was just incredibly spiritual. <laughs> and so for me, it's been uh, uh, that Incredible. that that <clears throat> that approach particularly is something in which I find great solace and and hope. Absolutely. Ah, oh, my word. Okay, one more thing here. This took me a minute. Your last name is Gardner. <laughs> I'm not the first person to point this out. You're not the first person to point that out. It's, You're Levi Gardner. It's true. <laughs> Just Your last name is Gardner. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, that's... If you're not here to do this... <laughs> what, what, what am I here to do? Man, that is... Oh, that is so good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. For coming by the back house. This has been a pleasure. So inspiring. And I hope that, you know, I hope people find you and find pieces of land. I hope so. Because this feels like a, it feels like a subversive movement that has economic and political and aesthetic dimensions. I mean, it's everything. It's incredibly. Obviously everything is spiritual, so I don't even have to say that, but. It's incredibly revolutionary. Yeah. while, While so accessible and. So old and so so new. It's like they talk about how if it's absolute truth, it will be paradox. Yeah. So fresh and so ancient, so old, so new, so groundbreaking, literally. Yes. And yet this is what's been going on forever. It's true. Oh, my word. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Grace and peace, everyone.